Hi! You're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. In this special bonus episode, you'll learn about what it takes to develop vaccines for viruses like COVID-19 with help from Dr. Julia Shaletsky. Dr. Shaletsky is the executive director of the Center for Emerging and Neglected Diseases, the Drug Discovery Center, and the Immunotherapy and Vaccine Research Institute at UC Berkeley. And she covers a lot in this conversation, so buckle up. Ashley and I will catch up with you at the end of the interview, but right now, let's satisfy some curiosity. What does it take to make a vaccine in the first place? Like, what science has to be done in order to make that a reality, in in order to make any vaccine a reality? Yeah, I mean, the more data you have, the the faster you can move. I mean, in the the old days when we didn't know much, um, we were able to just take you know, blood and plasma from from infected people. You know, you didn't need to know a lot of data at the time to isolate um, the virus and um, maybe inactivate it and try very crude vaccination experiments. But if you're looking at a large scale um, implementation of vaccine research that should be rolled out broadly, the first thing that's good to have is the sequence genetic sequence of the virus, and that with the new technologies we have in sequencing was published really just a couple of days after we heard of the first case. And that information was critical because with bioinformatics methods, you can find out which protein is a spike protein, for example, um, on the surface of the of the virus based on research we have had before around coronaviruses. And that's a prime target for making a recombinant vaccine, for example, where you just express the spike protein in some other system, for example, in bacteria or in yeast, and then you purify that spike and you inject the purified protein together with an adjuvant and you make a vaccine. So that's one way how you can try um, to make a vaccine. So in the beginning is the sequence, really. And then also the Previous research about virology and spike protein, for example, are, is important because otherwise you just have a sequence and you don't know what's what. So you need the bioinformatics tools also to figure out which proteins are the ones that you should be targeting. And there's already a wealth of data out there from previous vaccine efforts to tell which antigens, we call these proteins that elicit an immune response, which antigens are better than others, because not everything is equally good in making an immune response happen. So by spike protein, do you do you mean, I mean, like, I know that the coronavirus is spiky. Is that what you're talking about, the virus itself? That's correct. So probably many of you have seen electron microscopy pictures of the coronavirus and it's named corona, which means crown because of this, how how it looks like under an electron microscope. It is basically a, a round bubble and you have a lot of spikes coming outside and this whole sphere is spiky but in the microscope you always see just one layer because you need to focus on one layer so you slice through it visually and that's why it looks like a crown. Does that make sense? Maybe should I go over the life cycle for a second so people understand the the life cycle of the virus? That'd be great, yeah. Yes. So the way viruses infect the body is very interesting because most of them can't just get into the cell. So I'm, I'm just going to use an analogy here. It's like if a guest wants to enter your house and the guest is the virus and the house is your body or your cell, 
the virus needs a key for the door to even get in. So it can't just walk through the wall. It needs to have a key and the key needs to fit in the lock and then the door opens and gets in. So for coronavirus, the key is this uh, spike protein that's outside on the virus. And it fits right onto a receptor called the ACE2 receptor um, that is expressed on human cells and coats the outside of human cells. And so what happens is the key from the virus interacts with the, with the lock from the human cell and then the door opens and the virus basically walks into your cell. And then it's going to use everything you have in your house, all your tools, all your supplies to just build copies of itself while you watch and it will make thousands of copies, basically destroying your house while it does it and taking all, everything you have in there to make copies. And then, then the, all the viruses will leave the place and infect the neighborhood. So this is roughly what a virus life cycle is like. And the genomic information, so the RNA that the virus has in, its, in the middle of its particle is very well protected. That's the blueprint that it uses to build identical other virus particles. So it's like, it's the blueprint, but the virus has, is so minimal in, in terms of its genetic information. It, it's like, it needs a host to actually build um, the other virus particles. So it can, if you just have it in solution, um, growing in a, in a well without human cells, um, nothing will happen, you know? It needs human cells to really build the next generation virus particles. So it basically comes into your body and it takes proteins and tools and, and reagents that are already there um, in the human cell um, to build the next virus particle. And, with vaccination, we tried to interfere with several of these steps. And, you know, quite frankly, if we just go like conceptually simple, the best vaccine in terms of a response that we can have is very often a live virus vaccine. Because the immune system, there you would take the virus directly, you would make it weaker either by heating it up a bit or by adding some chemicals that, that kind of already give it a strong hit, but doesn't, doesn't fully kill it, you know? And then you would take those virus particles, inject it, and that will give you the best of all immune responses because you have the natural virus, you know, the full surface of the virus is there. The immune system will just go crazy and attack it. Um, but the problem with this is that coronaviruses generally don't grow well in tissue culture. So you can't manufacture enough virus to actually vaccinate large groups of the population. And it's also a bit riskier because you need to know exactly how much to inactivate the virus to make sure that you don't infect people with the disease because it's still a live virus. But in terms of immune response, if you get vaccinated with one of these once, it's normally lifetime immunity and it's, it's excellent. But because we can't grow it, coronavirus is pretty hard. We don't have technologies to grow a large titer or a large amount of this virus. So in that case, we go and we take proteins from the virus that are outside on the surface that we think should be good enough for the immune system to recognize. And there's a lot of thinking that goes into which protein do you choose because you want something that does not mutate very readily, right? Because then if you build a vaccine against spike protein A that is now here and then a month later, there's already so much mutation that the spike protein has a different shape and is no longer recognized by your 
antibodies that you build with the vaccine and the vaccine is basically basically useless that's one problem that we see with rapidly mutating viruses so you always so and that's where the informatics approach comes in because you have all these sequences from coronaviruses and maybe even from the same strain over time you know you have different sequences so you look at them in a process called alignment so you try to just line them up as much as you can with bioinformatics tools and find out which areas do never change and which areas change all the time, right? So this is what we call conservation. The areas that never change are considered conserved areas. And this is the same true in the human genome. You know, if you genetically look at everyone in the population, there are some elements that stay the same between humans no matter what, because they they need to stay like this for us to function. Um, And others, there's a lot of variation. Right. So if you make a vaccine, you want to pick the ones that stay the same, that the virus can't really change easily because the virus, the way it spreads, it always wants to evade the pressure. Like if we have great vaccines, the only virus that's going to survive is the one that is not get harmed by the vaccine. Right. So so you kind of selecting for that. So we need things that don't mutate, that are stable, and we think elicit a strong immune response um, and are easily accessed by antibodies in in the body. For example, the spike protein is a pretty good one for that. And then the next step will be you take the spike protein sequence and you make a genomic construct. It's called a plasmid, so it's recombinant. You just like that you can grow up this protein in a different host in bacteria or in yeast. So this is very similar how they make insulin, for example, for diabetics. You make the human insulin, but you make it in bacteria, right, in a biotechnological process. And that is very well established, works well. You can produce huge amounts of protein. We have these large brewery, it's almost like in a brewery, large um, instrumentation where you can grow up a lot of bacteria at a time. So that can work very well. With that, you can make a large dose of vaccine um, and also in the regulated fashion um, that is required for approval. Then you have your protein solution. It's all pure and you have a great batch. And then you need to do experiments first to show that it's safe um, and doesn't you know, cause any bad reactions. Um, so you will first do experiments in animal models. And also that's a challenging coronavirus because we don't really have very good mouse models, for example, because mice don't really get coronavirus very much. So if you infect them, you have to do, you have to jump through a bunch of hoops to basically use special specialized mice that have been bred specifically to have a weak immune system or some changes in the receptor so that the, the virus actually infects them because otherwise you can't use them to study the safety and efficacy also of the vaccine. So this is still being worked out as we speak. And then the next step is to go into clinical trials and test um, the vaccine in humans. And these trials can take a while. Um, The first trial, phase one, uh, is addressing normally just safety. So you want to see if there's any bad reactions happening. Normally with vaccines, not much of this happens. Um, So they tend to be very safe. But the key question um, is with vaccines, do they really protect you from infection? And how are you going to find that out? That's considered um, efficacy study that happens later, um, late phase two or in phase three um, is what, where you normally look at that. And because we can't ethically 
take a group of people and say, you know, you get a vaccine, you don't get it, and then we all infect you with the coronavirus, right? So this is an experiment we couldn't be doing ethically. Um, the way you have to run the assay is to just vac vaccinate a group, and then another group gets the placebo, you know, just an inject injection of something else. And then you wait and see, um, and you have to follow them over a couple of months to see what happens if the vac vaccinated group is doing better and if they can actually avoid getting the virus. So that's how the study design has to look like. Um, and it's difficult to do. And many efforts, I would say, of like rapid vaccine generation for outbreaks have been hampered by just the time it takes because very similar was the case in Ebola infection where we have a vaccine now, but the development of that was very difficult because Ebola outbreaks are relatively short-lived, right? Because you, you start getting Ebola and then it breaks out and then you quarantine everyone and you take public health measures um, that are well-established. And then once you have your vaccine ready and you have the animal results and you're ready to go into humans, the outbreak is already kind of gone. And then you can't do the study anymore. So that, that's what ha what happened with the Ebola vaccine. Why there was like discussion over years if it's working or if it's not working. Because in the end, it's, it's very hard to do a study because these outbreaks tend to go away, fortunately, after a while, after we, if we do good um, public health methods to contain them. I have a couple of follow-up questions and just to make sure I understand correctly. So going back to kind of the, that conservation part you talked about. So there are, of course, like, let's say minor mutations of this. And so what researchers are hoping to do is find those proteins that are universal in in all of the different kind of strains. And it sounded like what you said, it's kind of like a, a one shot fits all. So once we identify those universal proteins that that are included in every mutation, once that vaccine is developed, that'll cover all minor variations of of COVID-19. And is that is that similar to like that's different than the seasonal flu, right? Because we have to get an updated shot every year. Why is there a difference there? So it's it's different. I think there, this is probably the one good thing about coronavirus. It, it does not mutate quite as readily as influenza. Influenza is kind of unique among infectious viruses in how fast the genetic drift happens. So um, also within the influenza itself. Um, so that, that that's something I think we have a pretty good shot at with coronavirus. I don't know. I mean, we're still far away from a universal vaccine because the coronavirus problem there is maybe less making a vaccine against each strain, but um, the coronaviruses are really animal viruses, you know. They live mostly in bats. There's so many of them. And then we have many of them ca causing just seasonal regular colds in a very mild way. So that's how we we be getting infected by coronaviruses also, just different strains. The dangerous ones are all coming from animals. So SARS, um, MERS, and now COVID, they all are so-called zoonotic viruses. So they, they normally don't infect humans, but they jumped um, through some, some event to the human host and then human to human transmission happened as well, which is the second part that needs to happen because there's a lot of animal viruses and sometimes humans get infected who handle those animals, right? If you get bitten or something. Um, but 
not all of them actually have the capability to go to other humans from the human host, right? So if you get bitten by some bat, um, it doesn't, and you get sick, it doesn't mean that maybe your family gets infected because the, the virus is not built for going from human to human. And this is the second part of the puzzle that has to be there for a big pandemic to happen is the virus has to change or um, be, you know, have, have made mutations such that it can infect one human going from the other human. And that's unfortunately what happened with COVID. Um, but originally, this is a bat virus. And it's very, is highly interesting why bats. We have at UC Berkeley some groups who work on this. And, um, you know, now in the beginning, I thought this is it's maybe a little bit out there um, working on virus infection of bats. But it makes so much sense now because we learned, um, so I'm going to go a, a little off, off off script here and <laughs> talk about bat immune system because of this okay. is so interesting. Um, so the bats bats have a very specialized immune system, and basically what they do is they have an extremely strong immune system for viruses. So they can they can actually harboring a lot of viruses to just live in there. And it doesn't bother them a bit. So they have all these viruses. That's why they considered a super reservoir for, for, for viruses because they kind of live, live happily with a variety of them uh, through their lifetimes. And, and they're not really bothered because the disease never breaks out in them. So for me, trying to discover new drugs, this is a very interesting thing because we want to understand how do they do it, you know? If, if we could find methods um, where we could take bad, bad techniques and try to make drugs that replicate how you can suppress a virus and still live with it without any symptoms, you know, that would be great therapeutic. So we were very interested in understanding that, but this is where the corona, a lot of coronavirus reservoir is. And there have been big studies funded by USAID and, and others, for example, looking in Africa in the bat population and just figuring out what kind of viruses are present in these bats and um, which ones are coronaviruses. So UC Davis has run a big study in Africa and they, um, they've published the results of that. It's very interesting. I mean, it is... It's difficult work. It's basically locally um, all over the world collecting bat droppings and analy <laughs> analyzing them. But it taught us a lot about which types of coronaviruses are out there, which strains. And if you think what you just suggested along the lines of a universal vaccine, which is different from a regular vaccine, so universal vaccine would basically make sure you can't get attacked by any coronavirus, right? Um, not just one specific strain and would be great to have for these pandemics because you could prepare it in advance, you know, and then you, you'd have something on the shelf when, when, the, when the outbreak happens. But the difficulty there is you need to be able to predict somehow which of the thousands of coronaviruses that, that live in the animal hosts actually going to infect humans, Right? Because you can't make the vaccine against all thousands because they're so very different. You would have to find out, and this is something we we have just very early research on. You know, which how, how to predict why SARS, MERS, and COVID can actually infect humans, and then you know thousands of others uh, they don't bother us at all. So that's part of the basic research I think that needs to happen in virology, and unfortunately with 
I mean, with SARS, we learned a lot about this and there was a spike of activity after the SARS epidemic happened. But, you know, the way we regulate and fund research in this country is through government funding uh, through the National Institute of Health. And they they decide what they think is a priority. So, so SARS was funded well and progress was made. We actually almost had a vaccine that was ready to get go into humans and then funding dried up and everybody stopped working on, on SARS because they thought it's a non-issue now, right? And now we focus again on, on cancer and other things, right? So that's, that's a problem, I think, because we with virology and pandemics, you generally have to be very proactive. I mean, we see this now in the lack of proactive political response everywhere, but um, it's good to think about, you know, the major classes of viruses and what would happen if one of them jumped to humans, you know, and then to have some tools ready. So it's very important to invest in the basic research for even, you know, viruses in, in some animals that may not affect humans at this time, but but may in the future, you know, and that that work has to be funded and has to be supported in the laboratories. And I'm afraid to say that the political consensus isn't there for that because we often get comments from lawmakers like, why, why the heck would you look into some weird animals, um, virus infections, you know, why, why do we care? <laughs> and I think this outbreak is a good example of why we do care what, what kind of viruses happen is there and some bats in Africa, you know, because we can learn a lot about how coronavirus um, strains developed and which ones might jump on humans and how to best tackle that problem when it happens. Yeah, hopefully this this outbreak will uh, bring some more political will toward toward that research. Um, so you you mentioned that uh, it would take quite a long time to create a vaccine. How long do you think we're talking and what um, will, will do you think that will happen first or herd immunity will take over? Yeah, it depends how. So that question, it all depends on how we manage the outbreak. If we good with social distancing um, and um, just delaying the the peak as much as we can, um, then it, it might well be that the vaccine, uh, a vaccine might still make a difference. Uh the timeline normally under normal condition uh, for a vaccine is at least a year, maybe more. However, right now, now um, everything is rapidly changing. The technologies are changing and also the regulatory environment is, change, is changing. So it could be shorter. I mean, I'm not going to say what I'm expecting. It really depends how the clinical trials run. Also, if there's any safety issues or anything like that. I think right now, I'm going to explain a bit how the technologies are changing. I, I already told you the whole virus vaccine approach where you take a virus that's weakened and you you vaccinate like we've always been doing for polio. And then a recombinant vaccine where we take a protein and purify that and and then take this protein, put it in the, in the body to build antibodies against it. And then once the virus comes in the body showing that protein, it's immediately eliminated. That's called a recombinant vaccine. The third thing that's just emerged, and this is now the only vaccine that is currently in clinical trials for COVID, are so-called mRNA vaccines. So for those, instead of making the protein outside the body and then injecting it, you inject the nucleic acid, so the, the blueprint right, that you need to make the, the protein, and then your own body will make the protein. So that's easier to manufacture because it's just a sequence and we can just synthesize it. 
So this blueprint um, we can make in a large batch and then inject in people. The, the difficulty around this was more about because the blueprint is very, very unstable. So you have to make sure it's it's properly protected so it's not just chewed up or degraded before you even inject it. Um, but the company who's running the trial now, Moderna, and also the German company CureVac, who's going to do a trial soon, they both are mRNA vaccines. So they, they got the first part of the manufacturing, a batch, and selecting the sequence. All this was very fast because you don't have to do protein production. So that they now in clinical trials for Moderna, for the first time that I know of, um, the FDA has waived the need for animal experiments, which is kind of crazy. They've never done this before. Normally, you have to do very uh, thorough animal studies, takes months, the animal studies alone. But we already talked about that there is a lack of good animal models for the infection right now because we don't have a good mouse model. And even the mouse models we have, um, they are engineered and they first need to be bred and you need to develop a mouse colony that, that takes some time because all this has been, you know, stock, like the embryos have been frozen and everybody stopped working on it since SARS, right? We, we don't have a, an active colony um, for this kind of research. So we need to, so no animal model was there and they Moderna actually successfully um asked for this to be waived and so they three days ago they injected the first patient in a phase one trial so so far it seems we don't have adverse reactions and everything seems to be working and moving forward but we'll see how it works the the first critical question they'll have to answer there is does does the human body actually make antibodies against it right because if we don't then it's the wrong sequence or it does, just doesn't work. You have to start from scratch. And then if you make antibodies, the other thing you have to answer is, are these antibodies that we're making, are these enough to prevent or mute the infection when it happens? And this is a longer clinical trial to establish if it really prevents infection. And you have to follow people a long time as they just move around in society. And, uh, you know, you see if the one group gets more infections than the other group. That's basically what you have to study. Um, so that I would say in terms of timing, because we have mRNA vaccines, they could be, it could be faster. And because the regulatory um, capacities also are now waiving some things that were considered critical. I personally think, you know, this is just my own opinion, I'm, I'm not the FDA, um, but with vaccines, as long as, as you can show that they are safe when you inject them, you can actually ethically do away with some of the later trials if, if you're in a true emergency situation. Because um, in a way, if it's safe, then the patient can decide if they want to get the vaccine or not not knowing if it might work and protect them. But if you look at it that way, if it's safe, then there's only upside getting vaccinated because either it's not working and you, you can still get the infection, then you're in the same place that you were before the vaccine, right? So it doesn't change anything or it doesn't in fact protect you or protect you somewhat from the infection and then you have the benefit, but there's really uh, not much downside you could envision. So that method was followed under compassionate use licensing in Africa during the Ebola outbreak, for example, when it was impossible to, to get good phase three data showing if it works. So they would just say it's safe 
And then everyone who applies for it under compassionate use policy will just give it to them because it's safe, you know, there's no side effects um, really that were significant. And then they did this concept called ring vaccination, which can be very effective in curbing outbreaks. So every time you have a case, you would vaccinate every, the family and everybody around this person um, to stop the spread. And even after the case was identified, that was highly effective because you make antibodies in a couple of days and then um, you stop spreading um, the outbreak from patient one in the middle of your family because everybody who had contact with that person is now protected. So that was a very effective uh, thing. And I hope we can, you know, if we have good safety data, we can release an, a vaccine very fast, at least for high risk populations. For example, um, people working in hospitals, doctors and nurses and people taking care of sick, actively sick people, because particularly with the shortage of supplies we have now, I mean, it's, which is a whole other, other issue, masks and personal protective equipment, um, the vaccine would, would be fantastic, um, for, even if we can't manufacture enough for the entire uh, entire U.S. to at least have enough for people who are frontline workers and might not be able to protect themselves because of lack of gear at this time. And also, the the healthcare system is under so much duress now. Um, if 20% of doctors and nurses fall ill, um, you just it's, it's only making the situation worse. So the first priority should be to vaccinate and get some some batch out, even if we don't really know if it works, to just try and vaccinate these people um, just on the, on the chance that it could be working. Makes a lot of sense. I have a quick follow-up question about the, the mRNA. Um, I know you said that was like kind of large batch. We can make a lot of them. They're synthetic, but you said they're unstable. Does that mean hard to ship? Hard to, like, what does unstable mean? Unstable means, you know, it's an RNA. Um, it's like a line of sugar molecules. I'm just going to simplify a bit, but it, it's like it dissolves easily. So it can easily be degraded. You know, it's like if you have sugar molecules, you add some water, they get, they dissolve. So that's just a, a simplification. But RNA is very, very um, sensitive to degradation. For example, stuff you have on your skin, you have a lot of molecules that can actually chop up RNAs um, in your spit everywhere. So they can easily fall apart. Um, I think what these companies developing um, these vaccines really specialize in is the formulation of the of the of these RNAs. So they tend to coat them with a lipid vesicle, so you can't get any. It's like a little bubble of oil, right, and sitting in there. So the aqueous solution can't get in there. Um, and they have also certain modifications they make on the end of the mRNA where it's most vulnerable to be chewed up and they, they cap it with a, a molecular cap, for example. So things like that, there's tricks you can do to make it more stable and also the shipping and all this has to be investigated. But that's what these companies um, specialize in and they've been able to do this for other projects, right? So they, I think they, that's, that's why we can hit the ground running because they already answer most of these questions and now they just apply it to a new virus. Cool. And, and one other follow-up question. Uh, you, you talked about how it would be if it's not going to be dangerous or harmful to humans, then then there's no harm in testing humans. How and when do we know with 100% certainty that you can test a vaccine on a human and, and it's safe? What makes it safe? 
Yeah. So, I mean, you only know that after you tested a human. So you first do a phase one clinical trial is in healthy volunteers normally. And those people volunteer to get injected with the vaccine. For example, now in Seattle, um, patient one was a, a woman in her mid forties who just volunteered and, you know, and then you basically monitor them over a while um, at least two or three weeks to see what happens. I mean, you could have immediate reaction at the injection site, which is the probably most frequent, but really very minor uh, side effect of vaccines. And, and then they look, you look at the immune system also and take some blood samples, see if antibodies are made and if there's any bad reaction happen, happening um, in that time frame. But, you know, absolute certainty is elusive in these things. Um, and the, you can't really, you know, it, it's always a residual risk you take, you know, somewhat. But you have to decide, you know, if you, if you, you know, how, how this plays out with the other risks right now being exposed to the virus on a daily basis. Vaccines have a great history um, of being very safe, you know, relative to therapeutic drugs. I, with small molecules, sometimes it's harder to miss some really rare if events, you know, unless you have you test thousands of people or even more and look at it over time. So there can be surprises. But with vaccines, um, the history has been um, very, very good for safety. You know, the only... The only issues that I know of that we ever really had that were true, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of fake data around vaccines or fake news around vaccines safety, but the only problem we really had was with live vaccines when there were some manufacturing issues leading to actually live vaccines not being knocked down enough and then um, infecting some people. So this is more a manufacturing and safety issue, but that's a non-issue with recombinant vaccines because you never have a live virus and also non-issue with mRNA vaccines. Cool. Okay. And uh, in terms of that, the development, we talked about testing the safety, seeing how people react, you know, then the efficacy study, and then wait and see, right? We kind of, we, we have to wait to see like what the effects are. How long is that? Like if, if we, if we inject somebody with something, do we have to wait a month to see if there's side effects, two months? What does that look like? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not a vaccine doctor, but I would say probably two to three weeks is what I would look at, because at that point, you should have a full-blown immune response to it. Normally, the immune response starts immediately on several levels and after so for the ebola virus we saw that there was protection already after three or four days after the vaccine so i would say two to three weeks is a good time until you reach a plateau and after that nothing else is going to happen in the immune system so that's a good time to look at i think for safety and then the the question if it really works and pre protects you from infection is a different question that, that the, there is a mathematical thing if you look at many people um if you have a, a huge trial with thousands of people right at uh, you know injected at the same time you can probably get away with a shorter time frame if you have fewer people, you will have to follow them longer because what you need to do is to show a statistical significance between the treatment group and the placebo group. So that can be achieved either by a large effect of difference. So suddenly nobody ever gets sick anymore who gets the vaccine or you have a large group of people with a more modest effect, you know, um, things like that. So you have, it's a mathematical thing. Um, if, if you want to, you know, divorce these two groups and look at the effects. Uh, it's either time or or a large trial um, or a huge effect combination of all of those. 
right? The other thing that's interesting, I don't know for you, maybe to, there's a lot of talk about testing right now, but um, another type of test we need to be pushing for that nobody talks about right now is the serological test where you can see if you have already been exposed to the virus because currently we're just testing if you have it but we also shutting down our entire economy right and at some point maybe the people who already had it they could go back to work and they could just do their usual thing because then they're not going to get it anymore right they basically like vaccinated just by actually having had the infection and many we know that many people don't even know they had the infection because it, it is completely without symptoms. So all these people could go back to work and kind of keep, keep the economy going. But you need some tests um, to actually clear them. It's a, a serological test, you called it? Yeah, it's called a serological test. So they already run them in the lab for, for many things, you know, for other um, antibodies. I know they'll do it for chicken pox. I've had I've had one for that. Exactly. They can determine your titer, it's called, and they can basically see if you had it. I mean, right now, I don't know if it's feasible because the labs are so overwhelmed. Also, with the, I mean, they're all scrambling to get the actual COVID test going for active infections. But I think long term, we have to think about that because there's a lot now. I mean, it's kind of crazy to just shut everything down, right? Because the more people have had the infection, the more also could go back. Right. And do the usual thing. We wouldn't really have to do the lock in, in place order for them. Right. But like you basically have to build an antibody, you know, you have to build an antigen expression. So you code a plate and then you you have a, a so-called ELISA test where you look at blood from patients and then see, you know, how much of the antibodies bind to it. So it's it's pretty established technique it's, and it can be done in high throughput, but you need to to first express the protein. I think a test already, I saw somewhere has already been established, but not really mainstream yet, you know. Well, but right now with the ability to test, if you currently have it, like we're like short on kits, right? We don't have enough resources for that. So it might be the same issue for a while, even if and when the serological test is developed for this. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, in the end, it's all about regulation. Honestly, I think we've overregulated the testing um, in the U.S. It's just, I mean, we're we building um, testing capacity in Berkeley right now, and it's just, it's the problem is not technological. It's not even getting supplies really. It's just because. It's regulated as a clinical test for humans. Um, it's a totally different ball game from the research testing we normally do. And it, it's, I mean, everything is, is codified and you have to use a certain mega model of machine. You have to use a certain batch of reagent, you know, and they don't allow you to swap anything out. Um, so that's what, why the reagent shortages are such a problem. It's not like we don't have enough reagents to do PCR or RNA extraction in this country. There's enough for a long time, but um, we don't have the very make and model of the one kit that is approved for that assay in this lab. Right. And so if they run out of that and it's back ordered, then you just you just can't be testing anymore, although you have the whole infrastructure set up. Right. And you could take another kit and swap it and do the same thing, but it's not allowed. Wow. Right. Because then you have to go through this process called validation again, where you have several weeks. You have to um, basically demonstrate your assay still works the same way. You just swap the kit and you use a different manufacturer for 
whatever the buffer, you know, and then you have to demonstrate it still works the same way. You have to cross validate in another lab that's certified and then you can get going. So here you just wasted three or four weeks, you know, I mean, that, that's really why we are in this quag quagmire. It's like, I explain it to people with the dishwasher analogy. It's like you have a process to clean your dishes, but the way normal people would do it and research would do it, everybody just runs the dishwasher. Everybody does it the way they want. And in the end, you have clean dishes mostly. But but the way it's regulated for clinical, you would have to already you submit a lot of paperwork that outlines exactly what lot, lot and batch of dishwasher detergent you're using, which machine of dishwasher you're using, you know, what water you're using. And then if you dry off some, some wet spots, what towel brand and make a model of towel you're using. And then that gets approved. And then you can start washing your dishes. And the minute you, you run out of that brand of dishwashing detergent, or you need to use a different brand of towel or a different dishwasher, everything is gone. Like you have to validate again and submit the whole paperwork and somebody in the public health department and with regulatory FDA normally has to approve it. That's so that's why we are in this testing problem. It's that's what they mean by resources. It's not really that we can't make enough buffer. It's it's that everything is so codified that you have no way to easily swap things, even if you know they, they should work exactly the same way, right? You could use a different brand of dishwasher to wash the dishes, it would be fine, very likely, right? But they want you to test just with this setup and you know it's good for peacetime everything is very codified and there's a low risk of swaps and and mess ups but now we have an actively emerging fast spreading pandemic um, maybe we have to do this a bit differently you know because in the end we have to i mean i i'm tell I, my, in my opinion the, the time window for for testing is rapidly closing anyway because at some point if many people have it then the testing doesn't make sense anymore you just assume everybody has it you know it's testing is most effective early when the first cases hit the ground and this is what south korea did um, they tested within three days more than hundred thousand people and they were able to really rapidly contain it and they also tested the people without symptoms, which is the, the other part that we learn about this particular coronavirus, that a lot of people don't show any symptoms. And also that is not something that's news. I mean, for influenza, it's the same thing. Three years ago, we started learning through sequencing studies that actually for many people who have influenza, um, there's no, they have no, no symptoms and many have also very mild symptoms. So this whole old idea of you get the flu, you get it really bad, um, it's not really true. Um, for many people, it can be asymptomatic, but you can still spread it while you're asymptomatic. So... The, I think the rapid diagnostic element is very important, and um, I, I think the unfortunately that opportunity almost has passed already. So we're now just trying to keep up with who to quarantine and how to to react. At least that maybe people who are in touch with many others, like doctors and nurses, now if they get tested positive, we can do something about it. But. For the majority of people, this comes late. You know, our politicians have really dropped the ball here um, on developing some, you know, concert, like really big um, organized response that could take care of the first cases as they moved in. I mean, we didn't even know probably the majority of cases that 
for showing up in the US. I mean, before even borders were closed and things like that, because we weren't testing people. So in Washington, they're doing a lot now because they've been so heavily hit and they also got get money directly um, there because Amazon is there and the Gates Foundation because the other element is funding. There's a lot of work you can do, but funding is being released very, very slowly, even the emergency funding. And I can't say in Berkeley, we haven't received anything. Everything is like two months turnaround and then you get automated messages saying they're overwhelmed and, you know, I... It's just not coming down the pipe fast enough. But in Seattle, they did a lot of um, studies now, um, studying just random people, for example, and found out that 8% had it in that group of 3,000 sample size that they tested. That's a lot. Wow. Well, it gives you a, a kind of feeling of the reservoir and the population and why social distancing is so important, even though everybody seems to feel feel fine, you know? Because I would say the the positive thing on the horizon is that the virus, I mean, after two weeks, normally it's gone. So if you could just imagine separating everyone for two weeks, then it could totally die off, right? <laughs> because it only can survive if it spreads, right? Because your immune system will kill it. It's just... You know, if you infect others and then you, you you recover, but then the others just begin to have it, then you keep spreading and spreading. So in theory, that's how you could contain it. But it's very, practically speaking, it's very difficult to really not have contact with others for a couple of weeks at all. Right. Yeah, definitely. I'm sorry. It's a lot. It's been, you know, I've been working on this for weeks, like all the time trying to get the testing and, you know, just making sure also the public is informed. I'm glad you're playing a role in this. You know, it's important to get good data out and also for journalists to, I think, interface more with the science community because, I mean, people have been warning for years that this is going to happen and nobody yeah. listened, you know. I mean, I myself... Every year, at least two or three talks on campus with the headline, are we prepared for another Spanish flu? You know, and everybody talking about it and everybody says, no, we're not prepared, but somehow no action is taken. You know, the Office of Pandemics was dissolved last year by the government, right? Stuff like that. They just don't listen. And for me, this is, I mean... This will, I mean, eventually it's going to pass, but, you know, we have other problems that are like this too, like global warming where nobody is listening. And then the, the only action will be taken that's significant when it's way too late, right? <laughs> Which is like, like now, now they're shutting down the entire state of California. Um, half a year ago, nobody would have believed that to be possible. Right. Yeah, we're, uh, we hope that some people can learn maybe about climate change from this. Who knows? We'll see. Right. Because every, it seems like every small regulation, it's like pulling teeth, you know? And now look at us. We're just shutting down the entire state of California, the eighth largest economy in the world. Yikes. Right? Yeah. Now it's possible, right? But we, we have to, I think this is a human thing. We, we, we just not proactive enough. We have to basically take a little bit of pain when it still helps versus, you know, having a massive problem later. And then everybody has to bear the brunt of it. So I hope in the future there will be more involvement of scientists and, and opinion. And we have all these modeling studies and everything. It's not like um, we don't know what's going to happen, you know. And we need to, I think, really be proactive in virology also. It always used to be almost a, I don't know, a stepchild discipline, you know. 
not not so much happening. HIV was most of what's what was going on, but um, all these pandemic viruses, a little bit of research, you know, some diehard people, but it's it's not well funded like some other areas. So they need to really focus on putting some money and making it a priority so that hopefully COVID is the last of them that will break out like this on a global scale. And we're just sitting there and watching how it happens and there's not much we can do. So, you know, there's certainly some room for improvement when it comes to preparing for a pandemic. But on the bright side, maybe, just maybe, we can learn a thing or two from this unprecedented global event and use those lessons to avoid making the same kinds of mistakes again in the future. I thought it was really cool to get behind the scenes from a scientist who's actually working on this stuff. Yeah, turns out there's a lot that goes into vaccines. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Again, Dr. Julia Shaletsky is the executive director of the Center for Emerging and Neglected Diseases, the Drug Discovery Center, and the Immunotherapy and Vaccine Research Institute at UC Berkeley. Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, wash your hands and stay curious.